Week after week, the Cape Crusader copes with the tricky traps of vicious villains. Will the time arrive when the Cape crime fighters come too close to the jaws of death? Holy metronome! What a fate! Punched in a player piano roll. Watch Batman in color on ABC. Welcome to Two Old Farts Talk Sci-Fi. I'm David Klink. And citizens, I am Troy Harkin. And this is our first part of a trilogy of episodes looking at the 1960s Adam West and Burt Ward Batman. Our first two episodes will look at the series. And our third episode will look at the movie. Troy, you have been looking forward to us covering the show for quite a while. I have, David. I could not be much more stoked. I'm surrounded by all my things. I have my official Batman soundtrack from 1966 here. I have a bunch of Funkos. I've got my Joker. I've got my, my Julie Newmar. I've got my, uh, my Batman in the Batmobile. And I've got my, got my, got my, my Hot Wheels. Batmobile and Bat Cycle. I I couldn't be I couldn't be more stoked for this. I am having the ultimate nerdgasm for this one. Um, really glad we're we're actually getting to this, David. And you know what? I don't know if you remember, but when we first started uh, doing the podcast, this was sort of the thing. I was like, as long as we do a Batman episode, I'm happy. So I'm glad that we are we're getting this one under our belt. And actually, couldn't be happier that it's a three parter as well. Yep, in season uh, four, we finally got to it. Uh, this is, in fact, our fourth episode of season four, hold number 46. Episode two will be number 47. Episode three will be number 48. So it's nice to finally get to that. And riddle me this, Troy. Uh-oh. What did the Englishman say to the three-headed monster? What did the Englishman say to the three-headed monster? Hello, hello, hello. <laughs> I like oh, I'm that not one. Sure, I'm not sure how that was missed during the uh, 1960s Batman, but I certainly loved all the riddles and, and what they did with wordplay and everything else. Yeah, and supposedly Lorenzo Semple Jr. just took his daughter's uh, riddle book, and those were the riddles that he used for the uh, for the shows. Um, and there was one that just stuck with me today. I've been, I've been watching way too much of this. Uh, like, I think if I had watched one more day of bat footage, I would really go mental. Just like how the flaming carrot supposedly became the flaming carrot by watching five, by reading 500 comic books in one sitting. I was like scanning through 120 episodes of Batman. But one of the, one of the riddles was, I believe there are four men in a boat with three cigarettes how do they smoke don't know if you remember the answer to this uh, no i remember that one uh from i don't know if that was from the movie or from an episode i think it might have been from the movie but i think he mentions how they threw one of the cigarettes overboard which made the them uh uh, something made, about the cigarette lighter that made they, made the yeah, boat lighter. Yeah, made the boat lighter. Yes. Yeah. Um, yeah. Anyway, very it's great to be doing this one. So um, uh, this uh, is scheduled for broadcast on Saturday, February twenty fifth. We do not have a special guest for this episode. Before that, Troy will give us a spoiler alert. There is a special bat spoiler alert, citizens. Spoiler alert. Spoiler alert! Spoiler alert! Holy nightmare. Thanks, Troy. We are recording this session via Zoom. We are indeed, Chum. And I wanted to share with folks some of the onomatopoeia that comes up in the show. And of course, an onomatopoeia is a word that sounds like 
the sound it makes. And those are the, the words that we see superimposed during bat fight scenes throughout the episode and through uh, the movie. So um, David and I are pleased to present to you a, uh, in alphabetical order, a non-exhaustive list of some of the onomatopoeia from the fight scene. <laughs> Biff, boff, bonk, clash, crash, kapow, ko, plonk, crunch, ouch, pow, rack, slap, slap, couche, erg, bonk, whap, wham, whap, jam, slap, slunk. Yeah, as a pop. That's an odd one. That's so, so for our listeners, that's actually spelled Z P O F P with an exclamation mark. And what's interesting is each of these words has an exclamation mark at the very end. At least one. At least, at least one. one. Like <laughs> some are multiples. Yep. So, um, Two Old Farts Talk Sci-Fi is a look back to when we fell in love with the speculative genre, to recall these times with fondness and affection. I think The Little Songbird, in a review posted 4th of March 2011, may have said it best when they said in a review titled, Silly, of course, but a classic TV nonetheless, I love anything to do with Batman, and I just love this series. It is not the best of anything to do with Batman I've seen and any fans of the comics will perhaps be disappointed, but Batman 1966 is still a great show. Is it silly? Yes, it is. Holy boob tube. And somewhat camp too, with some of the lines and the delivery of them, but that worked in the show's favor. The campiness actually added to the quality of the show for me. And a vast majority of it was witty and fresh. On to Batman Part 1. Troy will do a bit of a history background. Take it away, Troy. For sure, Chum. Um, yeah, I actually wanted uh, to, to add to that excellent little intro that you did there too, David. Um, it's funny how this world that, that we sort of uh, call Batman 66, which encompasses the series and the film, and now a number of other things that have come up in the past 20 years that sort of replicate or try to replicate uh, the series. It's, it's a lot of fun. I mean, and it's intended to be a lot of fun. You know, this is a very specific Batman. It doesn't involve a dark night, a rage filled vigilante. It doesn't involve a Batgirl crippled by a psychotic madman. It's about a bright night played by a man named Adam West. His Batman reigned for three years in the late 1960s, both on TV and the big screen. The world he helped create is, as I said, now known as Batman 66. And creators today still reimagine that world in comics, graphic novels, and in animation. There are still echoes of, of Batman 66 all over the place. Some people choose to echo it and pay homage to it directly. Some go against its humor and brightness and have gone even darker with films like Joker and the Batman. The creative output of many others was simply inspired by it. And it's birthed their own worlds with their own heroes. But Batman 66 was a crucial part of the lineage of these new works. Batman 66 though not the first time a superhero was brought to the screen was the first time a superhero was a massive success. And it was the first time the producers realized that these crime fighters in tights and capes, uh, they might be more lucrative than anyone had ever dreamed. First of all, it was the 1960s. Culture was in an accelerated state of flux. It was the time of pop art and whimsy where Warhol and Lichtenstein borrowed liberally from comic books. It was the time of Bond where outlandish villains and their outlandish gimmicks were capturing imaginations. It was a time immediately following the ratcheting up of the Cold War and the assassination of a president. 
The youth culture of the baby boom was giving everything a new spin. At the time, producer William Dozier was looking to make something new and fresh. Meanwhile, the old Batman serials from the 1940s had begun to play in re-release, and college-aged kids found them hilarious. Dozier, along with screenwriter Lorenzo Semple Jr., went to town creating the -the over-the-top world of the Cape Crusaders. Struggling ABC TV was willing to give anything a shot. Semple, who would go on to write Three Days of the Condor and Never Say Never Again, as well as Flash Gordon, said writing Batman was the most fun he ever had on any project. Semple claimed that he and Dozier instructed the actors to chew up the set, to go wild. The actors were one of the aspects that made the show stand out. Stars of film and TV became Batman's villains, while Adam West and Burt Ward perfectly captured the mixture of understatement and over-the-top bravado that gave the show its campy tone. It would allow children to thrill over the heroic action and adults to laugh at the comedy. An incredible amount was spent on the show, including the construction of the Batmobile and its high-tech garage, the Batcave. Sets, costumes, colors, and camera work all gave the show its unique look. How could it fail? Well, William Dozier reported that initially this was not the case. He said it was the lowest rating they had ever had for anything. Had ABC not already bought the show, it would never have gone on the air. Despite the low expectations, the pilot airing on January 12, 1966, set records for a debut. And for the next two years, Batmania swept America and the world. No one could get enough of Robin's holy this and holy that, or all the pows and zaps that accompanied every fight scene. Not only were Adam West and Burt Ward instant celebrities once the show hit, the Batmobile was also a star. While Batman and Robin made endless personal appearances on TV and at special events, so too did Batman's car. For years after the cancellation of the show, these appearance requests continued, and they weren't necessarily for the actors West and Ward. They were for Batman and Robin in full costume, and, of course, the Batmobile, too. In an age where it never happened, Batman was greenlit by 20th Century Fox for a theatrical film release before the first season was completed. For those who weren't there, it's hard to fathom how all-encompassing Batmania was. There were albums, there were singles, there were trading cards, toys, models, you name it. And of course, DC Comics was pretty happy with the success of the show too, as the sales of the Batman comics and their other comics went through the roof. By season three, Batgirl, played by Yvonne Craig, joined the cast, and production slowed down from 60 episodes in Season 2 to just 24 episodes in Season 3. Despite Batgirl joining the dynamic duo, the show's ratings dropped, and Batman was cancelled. After ABC dropped Batman from its 68-69 lineup, NBC was willing to pick it up, yet the $800,000 Batcave had already been demolished and NBC decided it wasn't worth it for them to reconstruct the set, so the deal fell through. And so, Batman ended without the benefit of a cliffhanger resurrection. So, really, why was the show cancelled? Aside from simple ratings, the American zeitgeist had a lot to do with it. By 68, things were a lot darker. It was a year of great upheaval, more assassinations, By the summer of 1968, it was increasingly difficult to back Batman's message of supporting your local police force, even if it was a put-on. Following the show, both Adam West and Burt Ward found it increasingly difficult to get roles. It seemed they were shackled to their Bat costumes, having to continue to make an income through personal appearances as Batman and Robin. Through the 1970s, the two occasionally found work doing voiceovers, as their crime-fighting identities. And as time went by, Adam West was able to work by taking self-deprecating gigs on shows like The Simpsons and Family Guy. Through much of his later years, Adam West embraced 
the love he was shown by fans of the Batman series. And he made many appearances on the convention circuits around the world. In 2013, DC Comics launched a title called Batman 66, set in the universe of the TV show with the program's look and campy sensibilities. It was a hit and led to two animated films featuring the same Batman 66 vibe. They were both voiced by Adam West and Burt Ward. The second film even featured William Shatner as the voice of Two-Face. Sadly, many of Batman's stars, including Adam West, have left us. As of this recording, Burt Ward and Julie Newmar are the only stars of the show who are still with us. And that, Dave, is your Bat History. Thanks a lot, um, Troy. Um, And it certainly brings back memories of when I watched um, this show when I was uh, a youngin'. Um, So I'm just wondering what your first experience or memory of the Adam West Batman is. Well, it's, uh, I would have seen it as a very, very young child, uh, in, in first run. And I did see it as a very young child, uh, in first, in, when it was first on. Um, I don't even know if technically, I guess I was a toddler or a little bit older. Uh, it, it aired originally while I was like two to four years old. My mom bought me the 45 of it, of the song, of the theme song. And I would uh, do the twist in our living room um, and, you know, to amuse my mom and her parents. Um, but that and the Yellow Submarine 45 are my two oldest records that I have and, and remember. Um, and around the same time, I remember being taken to uh, what would become my school um, on the naval base where we lived and seeing Batman and Robin not the real ones, but seeing them on stage fighting with masked thugs, um, kind of like the ones that wore the black and white stripes in Christmas Story. And I was like, it just blew my mind that I was seeing Batman and Robin in front of me. And then a little bit later in the 70s, I watched it when it was on Commander Tom uh, at a Buffalo. Commander Tom, the Commander Tom show would alternate Superman one day and then uh, Batman episodes the next. So that was a great time uh, to be around. Um, and then eventually it was, you know, watching it in the 80s on city TV when I clued into the humor and the irony and the camp and all of that stuff. And around that time, I got to play Batman in a friend's Super 8 film project that we were working on in high school. Adam West Batman runs very deep for me, David. Western New York's favorite weatherman, Tom Jones, only on Eyewitness News. I also remember the Commander Tom show, and of course that would have been the George Reeves um, black and white late 50s repeats of uh, the Superman, along with, of course, a Batman series from 66. So I certainly have fond memories of that. And um, one of the memories I had early on, like one of the first memories I had, and I had to look it up to just confirm if I was just dreaming it, but there was a scene where there's, uh, uh, you know, Bruce Wayne and Dick Grayson, and they're, you know, they're doing a jigsaw puzzle and it's upside down. Like they're basically doing the back. You can't see the image. And for some reason, uh, Bruce Wayne t- t- told that, you know, it's a, for some reason it makes sense or something or other to, um, do it that way, which I found a bit odd, or you could even say, puzzling uh, <laughs> oh that's so, in the spirit i like it yeah now it was from and then i looked it up it was from the joker trumps and ace which is season one episode 25 and dick is working on a jigsaw puzzle and he says it's so much harder with the pieces upside down and bruce says of <laughs> course think of what excellent training it is for your visual memory and dick says gosh yes i guess that's true and that that's again the whole all those scenes episode upon episode upon episode where Bruce Wayne is almost admonishing or just making some point about something and that and then uh, uh, Dick or in some cases it might be Robin is somehow understanding 
and is letting his mind grow a bit, which I always found great. So my first experience would have been that puzzle thing. And also, of course, I liked um, Yvonne Craig as a Batgirl. Oh, she was great. And she had her own theme, which was very cool. I don't know if we'll be able to somewhere in one of these episodes just play a bit of it, but she had her own music and her own style. Yeah, let's hear a little bit of that right now. the fact that uh you know her her motorcycle is called the Batgirl cycle (laughs) (laughs) okay so you just brought to mind something there's um there's a scene i assume in one of the episodes i don't think it's in the movie where uh bruce and dick are playing a multi-level chess game and that that reminded me of star trek where they have sort of a similar thing yeah. Right, it's a it's a multi level game. Is is that? Are you a chess guy, David? Is there is that a That's real it, thing? Yeah, yeah. yeah. In certainly in um, the Star Trek episode, I think they called it three dimensional chess. And there's this whole thing that went on a number of different episodes where even in um, one where Kirk is put on trial, uh, they realize there's something wrong with the computer because Spock has been playing. Um, uh, against a computer that ha- that he had actually programmed, and he was uh, winning each time, which meant that there was obviously something wrong with the programming. But yeah, there's three dimensional. In fact, they even mentioned another episode where they talk about Queen to King's level one, and, and as as these, you know, they're going back and forth about specific moves as code to say if you don't know the response, and you clearly have been co opted. <laughs> when they okay. visit this prison planet, so yeah, there's certainly chess appears in a number of episodes. Yeah. So does that ex- actually exist? Like uh, some level, like some, some form of multi-level chess? Has uh, yeah, somebody? Yeah, you can actually yeah? buy it. Yeah, you wow. can actually oh, that's buy cool. a three-dimensional. Yeah, yeah. Well, wow. uh, what we're talking about, um, Star Trek, um, I, I always think of, uh, Batman, the Batman series, Star Trek and the monkeys sort of at the same time. They seem to share a lot of things. First of all, how hugely successful all three shows were. They all overlapped in terms of when they were on. They all had roughly three year, uh, or three season runs, which I find staggering considering how, you know, 50 years later, people know these shows that were only on for three years. Um, which I don't even, I couldn't probably tell you, um, say three shows that had been canceled in the past three years now, you know, <laughs> but these shows really left an impact. And part of it was their visual template. They all were like stunning looking. Um, and I know that that was serving the new color TVs um, that had kind of come in in 66 where it color had been around for a while, but 66 was the first year where it was commonplace um, in, in North American homes. It is in this dynamic period of consumer demand that the accepted name for quality in color TV will be built. As always, Zenith is ready for that challenge. All right, as long as you're ready. Imagine that you've decided that Zenith will give you what you want, that you've already brought a Zenith color set into your home. Now, let's see if it has what you want. Well, I want a fine piece of furniture. A set that's easy to operate. Appearance. Ease of operation. 
Okay. What do you look for in performance? I want the best. It's even more important in color. Highest quality picture and sound, like brightness. I want the color to be plenty bright, so, you know, we don't need a dark room to look at it. I want true-to-life color. I mean, I don't want my blue skies to be green or my red apples to be orange. And I want a sharp, crisp picture. I want to see eyebrows, not fuzz. I'll tell you what else I want. Dependability. I don't have to tell you, I've never had anything in my home anywhere near as complex as a color TV set. So, I don't want any trouble. I want the best performance on every channel on a set that's built to last. You want dependability. We hear you. Now that you've decided to buy color TV, why not buy the best? Zenith, where the quality goes in before the name goes on. Um, yeah, yeah, shows even like Rat Patrol, one of my favorite shows mm-hmm. back then. The first season was in black and white, and they had very basic opening thing then what happened second season they had now in color and a lot of these shows had in color at the bottom of it yeah and they shot a whole new opening sequence because rat patrol was so popular that's worth them spending more money and getting a proper opening and that was and i'm glad you mentioned about colors because it does look like they emphasize it so much there's just so much color in the 66 batman series yeah and it makes sense right i mean obviously Batman has moved away from this look as have the comics, but it was a reflection of like the four color comic um, template that like they were really doing a pretty good job of replicating what was there. Now they were having a laugh at it, but um, they really were, they really did try to stay true to the way things looked. Um, Going back to the sort of connections with, with Star Trek, Every time I hear about or think about what uh, Adam West and um, Burt Ward went through in those years following cancellation of Batman, I always think of Shatner and Nimoy, um, who also had to deal with the idea of being typecast, paying the price for the massive popularity of these characters that they played. Um I guess you see some of those parallels as well, Dave, or? Oh, absolutely. Um, now, some people had a bit more uh, success because certainly Leonard Nimoy had all sorts of different roles um, and even William Shatner at points. But you're right. If you're identified with that one character, that's been so- sort of the concern that some actors have in going into one of these series, but I think the overall positive effect, plus if you're in genre and the show does well enough, you are going to get invited to various media conventions and so on and be able to sell out autographs and, and do, you know, connect with fans and be able to make a, a, a sort of a living um, doing, I'm trying to remember the name of the actor, my brother-in-law Rob Sorry would certainly remember him right away but there was an actor who played a couple in a couple episodes of the first run of star trek and he actually got you know invited to some convention was selling autographs and hanging out with people um you know you can sort of make a bit of a living doing that yeah well it was nice to see that you know they were all able to go from being treated as sort of a laughing stock for a while immediately following uh, the successful runs that they had to being embraced. Um, And I think they probably all felt, well, they have all, I think expressed a sense of feeling fortunate that they were able to outlast those tough years and to, you know, find themselves being beloved. Yeah. I appreciate your comment about the overlap too, because it just happens that Yvonne Craig was in an episode of Star Trek and Frank Gorshin was in an episode of Star Trek. So you got this, but there were a number of actors like mm-hmm. Leonard Nimoy himself and Julie and Newmar number, and Julie Newmar in different uh, shows that appear in, in F Troop or appear in this or that or Twilight Zone 
um, because there were only so many actors that were getting work compared to just how many actors there are and how many opportunities there are with all these shows and, and these networks and, and um, streaming and everything else. There's just such a, you know, these um, like Netflix original series and so on. There's just so much out there. Um, but back in the sixties, um, you would see Leonard Nimoy, Nimoy in five different things, you know? Yeah. Let me just touch on some of the things that, the Batman series um, brought to us that sort of were not in existence prior to uh, the show's existence. Um, So the series gave us the character uh, Batgirl and King Tut, um, both of whom were brought into the continuity of the comic books. Meanwhile, Mr. Freeze had existed previously as Mr. Zero, but once Mr. Freeze was rechristened and introduced on the show, that was the name that DC Comics ran with. Um, the show also introduced the Bat Poles. The Bat Poles. That, that hadn't been a thing in, in Wayne Manor or the Bat Cave prior to the series. Um, for those who don't know, and I can't believe that you wouldn't know, that was Bruce Wayne's quick route to the Batcave from his home above it. Uh, the Bat Poles were inspired by another millionaire, though. It's been reported that Hugh Hefner had a pole between floors in his mansion. So Dozier and Semple gladly applied this to their millionaire playboy. Some people thought that um, Aunt Harriet was created for the show, but that's not true. So the first appearance of Aunt Harriet, this is uh, Dick's Aunt Harriet, and Harriet Cooper, they call her in the show, um, was Detective Comics number 328 in June 1964. So this is basically two years before the series. Um, And spoiler alert, um, she shows up because she's, she's heard about, spoiler, the death of Alfred. And she wants to, uh, you know, be a, an influence there. And, uh, and Bruce sort of muses to, well, first of all, okay. In the final panel of that issue, uh, Dick says, having Aunt Harriet around is going to cause some complications. And Bruce thinks, yes, indeed, especially how to account for our, our absence from home when we're out on a case as Batman and Robin. So yeah, she was uh, around in the comics before she was on the series, and um, I, it always cracks me up that that it seems like at least every second time their excuse uh, to leave the house when they have to go fight crime is that they're going fishing. <laughs> yes, and the other thing is that you'd almost think that Aunt Harriet should have got some kind of special insurance or protection because she's almost run over by um, Dick Grayson or or um, Bruce Wayne many times. Like they're just rushing out and then suddenly they <laughs> run into her and then they have to come up with some kind of uh, an excuse of why they're rushing off together. For some reason, I was under the impression for a number of years that, uh, that Aunt Harriet was also Aunt B from the Andy Griffith show. But that's not the case. But, but that was one of those sort of... Uh, uh, Mandela effect things that I had going in my brain. Um, one of the things that I wanted to mention, David, was that uh, word is that Commissioner Gordon, Neil Hamilton, and Chief O'Hara, played by Staff- Stafford Rep, really, really did not like each other. Um, despite the fact that, like, I think they only ever share scenes together, uh, and they're pretty much in every episode. So Neil Hamilton had been around since the the days of the silent films. Supposedly he actually was in some D.W. Griffith films. Um, And he considered himself a very serious actor. And he looked down on Rep. Um, Again, that's Chief O'Hara. While Rep was fond of goading Hamilton, who he thought was uh, pretentious and full of himself. But (laughs) uh, supposedly they would just bicker on set all the time. Wow. You know, it's, it's, that's some of the, the things that I appreciate with the sixties, you know, the, the, that whole concept of having 
a style, just like the Law and Order episode. You had kind of a script, or you have this or that. So there's an early scene where where Commissioner Gordon is in the office with the chief and with several other sort of high ranking uh, police officials, and there's something has happened, and they're really puzzled about how to proceed. And then they all stare across the room. And the camera follows and you see the red phone there. And then Commissioner Gordon makes some speech about, well, we're going to have to talk to Batman. I, I like that phone too. The fact that you press, it's got one button. You press it in, the thing turns red. Uh, and Alfred is always there to, I don't know how often, um, Bruce Wayne ever answered the phone directly because it always seems, I guess maybe he needs time, but Alfred is always there, um, to, answer it and and find um bruce yeah didn't you i uh, like i don't know about you but i always wanted a red phone and i wanted the glass uh cake case that they to keep it in i thought that was the, the best touch ever having the phone underneath that glass uh, the, the glass cake cover well, there are two really big iconic things. There's that phone, the red phone with the glass case. And the other one is, I think it's a bust of Shakespeare, if I'm yeah. not mistaken, in the, in the, where yeah, you wouldn't expect, it's the best place to hide like a secret button to be able to open up a wall of books because who would actually take a bust and actually pull the head back? Right. And then press some button in its, in its throat is, but it was quite a beautiful um, uh, um, idea there. Well, you know, that's something that I still would like to have. I, I don't know. I don't. I'm losing space now in my my man cave and my uh, sort of offshoots of my man cave, which this room that we're recording in is. But like, as much as I would love to have a, uh, a Batman sixty six Shakespeare bust, I don't think I have any place for it. I, you know, I I would have to swap out my my Caesar from Planet of the Apes bust, you know, and I don't know that I could ever do that. Um, yeah, now as ludicrous as it is, I mean, the bat poles were pretty cool, eh? That's the the other thing I was going to ask you about, and thanks for for bringing back the bat pole because they and and the, one of the great things also with all these signs, you know, you got you got Dick and you got Bruce on the pole then you got the combat computer and you've got everything has this sign about what it does then this whole bat pole thing i've never understood because you go down i assume you go down a level <laughs> then you go to a dressing room switching your thing but but the sense i get is as you're going down the pole somehow your clothes disappear or, or are taken off and you get into the suit as you're going down the like is that how you thought it worked because that's how i thought it worked well yeah <laughs> I think we're not, and I totally agree with you. I'm just laughing because it is, it's just ludicrous. Um, and it's sort of like the invert, inverted version of like, you know, Superman with Clark Kent with his Superman stuff under his suit, you know? So it's like really as Batman and Robin are fighting crime, they have their, uh, their, uh, you know, millionaire playboy and uh, youthful ward clothes on underneath, I guess. Right. But I mean, like you can slide into pants and boots, I suppose. Right? But how do you slide into like a top? Unless Bruce is really working some high tech stuff there. Maybe yeah, some oh, Zoolander stuff. I got there. it. I got it. It's some sort of high tech spray on costume. Oh my goodness. I didn't think about that. There you go. <laughs> they go through some water, some sort of spray that actually yeah. erases the, the, the stuff that they were wearing. But see, this is like how conspiracy theorists work. You know, you take something that's not plausible, and then in order to create your story, you have to create more implausible situations and to back it up. Because then we have to figure out, like, well, yeah, how does that work? But anyway, or we just don't think about it, which is, I think, probably what uh, Semple and uh, Dozier wanted. It's like, no, don't, don't worry about it too much, kid. Just, just watch it. <laughs> yeah, it's yeah. a quick way of getting into what they have to do or, or eating up some time. I guess the episodes might have been half an hour, so it might be twenty, twenty-two minutes of, or twenty-four or twenty-five. So, and you've got that minute of them going down. And then getting in the atomic batteries to power turbines to speed, which which they uh, turbines to speed, which they did not repeat every no. time, but a number of times they do repeat it. 
um, watching the first six or eight episodes or so just in the last week, I noticed that, yeah, they did mention in one, but then in another one, you know, it wasn't consistent. Right. Um, I had a friend that every time uh, if I was driving and I picked him up every time he would ride shotgun, he would do Robin's lines about, you know, atomic battery to power, that type of thing. Um, and I, I, before we uh, move on, I, I won't, thought this was probably a good time to add my twist on the, uh, the Freudian saying, sometimes a bat pole is just a bat pole. Um, one of the things that I, <laughs> yeah, one of the things that I, uh, you know, when I watch this, cause you know, you remember certain things about it and then other things you don't, but the overall feel of it, I realize like just strikes me or reminds me of other things that, that I really love like Barbarella, much later, Austin Powers, the Pink Panther films, um, Bond in the 70s when it gets a little goofy but still fun, and uh, Naked Gun and Police Academy because Leslie Nielsen is the king of deadpan. No, not Police Academy. What am I saying? Yeah, you're talking about the Naked Gun. Naked Gun and Police. Had a six-episode thing, and then they became the Naked Gun movies. Yeah, but no, no, no. The series was called. <laughs> okay. Oh, squad. Of, yeah, something from the police. Yeah, yeah. Files from the police squad or police yeah. squad. Yeah. Anyway, not police academy. Sorry, folks. I'm not. Yeah, I'm not. Squad. I'm not here boosting police academy. I'll leave that in because it shows that I'm goofy as fuck. Um. Anyway. Uh. Yeah. Naked Gun. Um. Like, I mean, do you feel that way, David? Like, you can see sort of those connections. Oh, absolutely. Um. Yeah, yeah, I and I did like Police Squad, but for some reason it was very weird because it was only six episodes long, but it did have that connection to it because you had the guest, the the, the special guest at the very beginning of the episode dying in a particular way, so it had this kind of thing. Plus, it pushes limits a bit. Like I remember yeah. the episode where they talked about that that they were walking through a Japanese garden. They had a bunch of Japanese people in potted plants. Um, and they also had the club flamingo, and it's basically this neon flamingo being hit by a neon club. Um, yeah. And both shows um, did not have laugh tracks, which I love. To me, that's always a sign of intelligence, you know, when you trust your audience enough that you don't have a laugh track. Although I did hear a story about uh, somebody watching, like one of the producers or actors watching an early episode of Batman with their very young son. And, you know, the kid was all caught up in the, in the drama of it, but the, uh, the, the dad was like laughing at, you know, the appropriate places, but the kid said, dad, this is serious. Don't laugh. <laughs> so there's that, you know, the way that that show works on those two levels. Um, I have two things I wanted to touch on too, because I guess we will actually be wrapping up this part, which is really just a launching point for our discussion. We'll get into uh, the episodes in our next show, but um, I want to do Beatlesms, but I also want to talk about uh, how Adam West was approached by James Bond producers, the James Bond producers uh, about playing 007, for On Her Majesty's Secret Service. Uh, at the time, he was still uh, very busy with the Batman commitments, uh, and he also felt that Bond should be British, that is, Adam West, so he, he turned it down. Um, but imagine Batman and Diana Riggs and appeal together in a Bond film. Yeah, that would be quite something. Kind of sweet. So I've got three Beatlesms for you. Um, right. One was... Adam West has been quoted saying that in the late 1960s, there were the three B's, Batman, Bond, and the Beatles. And I'm good with that. Uh, in, a, in a season three episode, Dick Grayson is practicing the drums with a long-haired Beatles wig on when the bat phone rings and Bruce walks by him and says, Cool it, Ringo. <laughs> <laughs> um, and for those that sort of have the ears to hear it, the Beatles song Taxman from their 1966 album Revolver has a bit that sounds like Batman from the opening of the show. Check it out. And you're working 
one of the things that was very cool was this show, just sort of like The Simpsons, where where it became big enough that that just everyone wanted to do it, and people wanted to be that guest or that person doing a cameo as Batman and Robin do the bat climb up the side of a building, and then guess what? You know, uh, someone famous does a little cameo and and step and and you know pulls open a window and set, and has a little talk with batman and robin and a few of them uh, i found this from uh warpedfactor.com um jerry lewis was uh one of the people dick clark um sammy davis jr uh was um i think Stephen eady even where even though they're not listed here uh don ho who is famous from tiny bubbles the um uh the the hawaiian a singer um uh Werner uh, Klemper who was Colonel Klink from Hogan's Heroes right was actually in the uh uh window for one of those and when it comes to the villains the actors and actresses that came in to do those including Roddy McDowell and Vincent Price and I think that might have been Milton Berle Yes. Uh, Otto Preminger. You think, okay, well, who would do this? And Cesar Romero, who was um, fairly well known at the time, Burgess Meredith and and so on. You had such a strong list of actors and actresses. Of course, Vincent Price and Egghead. But there were three different Mr. Freeze. That's right. Uh, George, George Sanders. Otto Preminger is the one that I remember most. And supposedly Adam West has reported that Otto Preminger was a bit of a dick to work with. Oh, no. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, we always... Yeah, go ahead, please. I was just going to say, there was uh, one scene where I think Batman's trying to save Mr. Freeze, who's on the floor, and he said Preminger would do nothing to help him with the, you know, like, help him to uh, have Adam West ease Mr. Freeze off the floor. He would just go like total dead weight. <laughs> and and uh, so they had to keep doing this over and over. And of course, the more they did it, the more tired Adam West was becoming. And so at one point, he said, I came over to him to get him and I kicked him in the ribs <laughs> intentionally. <laughs> wow. Yeah. <laughs> um, and uh, John Aston, who was in Adam's family, I believe, yeah, Which we always associate the Riddler, of course, with Frank Gorshin, but uh, John Aston was a Riddler at, at one point. Yeah, only one or two episodes, but that's right. And I was sort of surprised when I realized that, you know, I always knew Eartha Kitt uh, had played Catwoman, um, but you know, we grew up with syndication, so you sort of just got whatever episode, whenever. And I didn't realize that she only. Uh, played the character two or three times in season three. And those were the mm. single, those were the single episodes. So really she only has about 40 to 60 minutes worth of Catwoman. Yeah. And one of my uh, uh, favorites, I think he may have played Harry Mudd in I Mud and Mudd's Women in Star Trek, but Roger. <gasps> right. Yes. Colonel that's, where, Gum. that's where I recognized him from. It was driving me crazy but to have that level of, um, you know, actor and, and actress to play um, Victor Buono as um, King Tut. And, and, and Liberace was a villain. Yes. And even um, uh, if you want to connect with Star Trek again, Joan Collins, who was a siren, of course, was in um, uh, the um, episode uh, Journey to the um edge of forever or whatever it was called in um star trek the original series which is considered the best of the original series um and she was a super villainous um so yeah to to have this um this selection or be able to have these uh excellent you know uh, actresses even jaja gabor who was basically in everything in the 1960s um uh, was in it. Yep. And there was a long list of people who, you know, wanted to get on, including Sinatra. Um, but they just, you know, 
Here's the thing too, David, that, you know, they did 120 episodes in, in what was, you know, really three years, but they were not full seasons. Like the third season was not that long. And the first season, uh, was a replacement series. So they started in January. Um, yet they did 120 episodes because of the twice a week thing of the first two seasons. So to put that in perspective, it from 66 to 68, 120 episodes. That was the record for years for uh, a superhero series, the, the number of episodes for a superhero series. It wasn't broken until Smallville did it, uh, probably around 2010. And th- they had a 10-year run. I don't think we're ever going to see this again. No, no. I mean, there's so much about that series that was very, very unique. Holy memory bank, you're right. And the good thing is, next episode, um, I will point out for folks um, some of the notable shows that they should look for if they don't want to sit through all 120 episodes. Well, I think that's the end of our Batman 1966 Part 1 episode. Folks out there, please remember to catch us on your favorite podcast providers. And for, as it has been for a while now, we're available on Spotify. I listen there now. Um, we're also on the website at twooldfarts.ca. That's numeric two. Uh, Facebook, Two Old Farts Talk Sci-Fi, as it sounds, all words. Um, and please check it out because we have lots of stuff going on there. Like and subscribe and join us next episode. I am David Kling. And I am Troy Harkin. To you all for our next episode of Two Old Farts. Talk sci-fi. Same bat time. Same bat channel. Deceiving us? Has the giant clam really swallowed Robin? With beautiful Venus next on his monstrous menu, leaving the Joker free to confuse, confound, and control Gotham City? Find out next week. Same time, same channel.